So think expansively, but then act deliberately, you know, be informed, do your research, and then take deliberate action to accomplish your charitable vision. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This podcast was brought to you by Oak Maple Finance. At Oak Maple, our fiduciary, heart-centered approach means letting go of one plan fits all advice. Our process is simple. You talk, we listen. You get financial guidance customized to your specific needs because we know that life is better when your financial plan fits you. Visit our website at oakmaple.com. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing how to start your own nonprofit. This is one way to fulfill your philanthropic objectives that we have not yet discussed as part of the Women in Philanthropy series on the Breaking Money Silence podcast. I'm really excited to talk about this. It's an area that I don't know that much about, and I'm really looking forward uh, to having a conversation about how to form a nonprofit and especially geared towards women. My guest today is a colleague that I met in a networking group called Provisors, and she is also someone who has a very big heart. Her name is Sharon Lincoln. She's an attorney and partner at Kasner and Edwards, and she is somebody who is dedicated to empowering women and her clients. At Kasner Edwards, Sharon advises nonprofit entities on a wide range of issues related to their tax-exempt status. She actually shared that tax law was something that was interesting, so that's something we might explore later, uh, including the formation, funding, governance, executive compensation, regulatory compliance, and merger, mergers and acquisitions. So Sharon Lincoln is a very smart lady, and she is joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Sharon. Thank you, KBK. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for such a warm introduction. Oh, you're welcome, Sharon. It's really going to be fun to have this conversation. You know, I've worked in nonprofits, um, but I've never even thought about forming my own profit. So to start off, you know, often people think of donating money as a way to fulfill their charitable goals. And we have spent several podcasts really talking about how people can do that in small and larger ways. Um, but there are some women out there, men too, but some women who decide to start a nonprofit instead. So tell us a little bit about how you might work with these women to help them think about and create a nonprofit in order to use as part of their philanthropic uh, endeavor. Sure. Well, I think one of the first questions to ask is, you know, how do you individually, you want to help? What is the problem you want to solve? What speaks to your experience? Some some people want to form nonprofits because there's an issue that they feel very strongly about, or in some cases, there's a family member who may have passed on that they would like to honor. 
And in some cases, there are uh, women who just have a great idea that could make things better for a small population, a large population, and they want to find a way to actually get it out there. And in that respect, I think a quote from uh, Pierre Amidiar, who's the founder of eBay and a distinguished philanthropist, speaks to the idea of you know, philanthropy as a broader concept. He said, philanthropy really defined in its original sense is a lot of humankind and trying to make the world a better place. And philanthropy with that kind of framing is very broad. Charity, as it's defined by the IRS, is a narrower sphere of activity. And so one of the things that I uh, discuss with, with every new client is whether what they envision properly falls within the IRS framing of charity or whether there's a broader philanthropic mission that, that a nonprofit might not be the best vehicle for, but that there's another vehicle to accomplish that philanthropic mission. And that's a really important gating conversation. It has to do with the sphere of activities. It has to do with what kinds of affiliations and partnerships might enhance that mission. And it has to do with how the mission is going to be financially supported. So that brings me to the to another question, which, you know, often I would joke around it may or may not be funny depending on who you are, but a, that a nonprofit is really a tax status. And it's, you know, sometimes I find, and this is a stereotype, so I don't want to reinforce it, but for some people in the nonprofit world, because they are so giving, that often some of the business strategy isn't there. So beyond a tax status, um, in the simplest terms, why do a nonprofit versus a for-profit? Well, a nonprofit has... A, a kind of a halo of credibility because it's not personally owned. There aren't shareholders to whom the board of directors is beholden. There's no obligation to maximize shareholder value. And from that standpoint, it does have a presence that is credibly mission-oriented and not private benefit-oriented. And also, uh, nonprofits that are uh, described in Section 501c3 of the code are eligible for certain governmental grants. They're eligible for uh, private foundation grants. They also can solicit donations that are tax deductible to the individual or corporate donor up to a certain extent. But those are those are distinct advantages. On the flip side, a, a tax exempt nonprofit is subject to a significant amount of a regulatory oversight, both by the IRS and state charities officials, and is subject to a certain amount of reporting transparency. There's a, an IRS form called the Form 990. It's called an information return. It's not a tax return because tax-exempt organizations generally don't pay taxes on their income. However, it's an information return. And there is a lot of information that's disclosed on that return, including compensation information and 
revenue, expenses, uh, and program-related information. Interesting. So once a person decides, hey, I want to start a, a nonprofit, you have that gatekeeping conversation, say it's something like one of my favorite charities out there right now is SavvyLadies.org, and their mission is to provide financial education uh, for women, no matter what their economic situation is. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, once you decide, okay, I, this is clearly a nonprofit, it, there is a mission, I'm going to go this route. Are there other things that that people need to consider beyond that or that you yeah. work with people on? Yeah, there there are. I, first, you know, you want to make sure that there's a really a, a business plan of sorts in place. It doesn't have to be a, a formal business plan, but there should be a relatively realistic uh, vision for what the funding is going to look like. There should be a board of directors that that the founder has identified that is willing to serve and support a startup nonprofit, which is, you know, sometimes a bit of work. They should be ready for that regulatory and administrative overhead, that Form 990 that I mentioned, state charity filings, and the accounting that has to happen uh, and the bookkeeping to support being able to fill out all those forms. That overhead can sometimes be somewhat daunting. And so one option that new visionary nonprofit founders have is to get a fiscal sponsor to help incubate the program or the mission that they have in mind for a period of time. A a fiscal sponsor takes care of all the regulatory and administrative overhead and generally operates the program underneath the fiscal sponsor's own 501c3 umbrella. And that gives the founder an opportunity to develop the stakeholder base, develop a funding base, and really kind of reality-proof the programs that the founder has in mind. Um, so that's so one eventually, of- So eventually, sorry to interrupt the chair, but eventually would the... Um, fiscal sponsor go away? Would they separate from that fiscal sponsor and then go off on their own? Or is it something that maybe they'll just stay within that system? Usually, not always, but usually the nonprofit program spins off into its own separate nonprofit corporation and applies to the IRS for recognition of tax-exempt status. And I'll pause there because there is there's an important step that not everyone is mindful of. The Nonprofit corporation is formed at the state level, and when it's formed, it's taxable until the IRS uh, issues a determination letter. Now, if the organization intends to get that determination from the IRS out of the gate, which usually they do, they generally should operate as if they have their tax-exempt status um, because that determination letter from the IRS is retroactive to the date that it's formed. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. There's a distinction between forming a nonprofit and actually being tax exempt. That's interesting. I wouldn't have definitely not known that. So when you're working with women who are starting nonprofits, are there particular mistakes, you know, maybe the top two or three that you see uh, founders making? Well, first, it's not being mindful of the corporate formalities in terms of those filings that I mentioned, for example, if 
if a nonprofit does not file its Form 990 three years in a row, its tax-exempt status is revoked. So there are serious consequences to not keeping up with the regulatory requirements. There are state law penalties for not filing. I'm licensed to practice in both Massachusetts and California. Both states have very active and dynamic charity regulation. And so, and the regulators are are accessible, but very focused on ensuring compliance. So it's the administrative and regulatory component that I think people just focus on mission, which is yep. the really engaging part. And filling out IRS forms is not really engaging unless <laughs> you're a tax attorney like me. So, you know, I think also just the time required, I think sometimes founders underestimate how long it can take to really develop that robust donor base. And, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, unfortunate kinds of situations where there was a, a charitable intent and the local community may not have been as supportive as possible with respect to the charitable intent of the founders. I know of one case where on the West Coast where a a couple purchased some property and then the local assessors and zoning board just made life miserable for them and they were not able to fulfill the charitable mission they envisioned for the property that they had purchased uh, for philanthropic purposes because the local regulators just wouldn't allow them to conduct the activities they wanted to conduct. Oh, that must have been a heartbreak for them, trying to do a good thing and having it not work out. Yes. Yes. It was very hard. So at what stage in the process, if someone out there is thinking about starting a nonprofit or just learning a little bit more about, you know, do they have the capital? Do Can they think beyond the mission? At what point do they reach out to an attorney like yourself so you can help them avoid some of these pitfalls? You know, it's it's usually better to reach out to an attorney in this area sooner rather than later to help inform the the founder of the suite of options that they have available to them to accomplish their philanthropic purpose. I I remember uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to speak to uh, a student at Harvard Business School who had a vision for a certain philanthropic initiative. And, and we, we met over coffee and she described her, her idea and had been thinking about perhaps housing it in a, in a nonprofit corporation. And through our conversation, it became clear that, that the IRS rules would really have narrowed and limited the vision that she had. She ended up forming an LLC and conducting the activity through the LLC. And it was a a much more effective vehicle for accomplishing the philanthropic purpose in in every respect. Other options include, you know, maybe you form a 501c4 tax-exempt organization, which is another kind of tax-exempt organization. It's called a social welfare organization. Uh, It can be formed for charitable purposes, but the rules that apply to a 501c4 are in many ways less onerous than the rules that apply to a 501c3. And so sometimes forming a 501c4 nonprofit actually has accomplished the philanthropic and charitable mission better. Also, where you form the nonprofit 
actually matters because different state regulators have different regulatory regimes. And for a nonprofit that is intended to have national or international scope, to form the nonprofit in, in a state that may have very state specific and perhaps more restrictive regulatory rules may not suit the long term purposes of the nonprofit. For example, in Massachusetts, I mean, I form Massachusetts based nonprofits all the time. However, Massachusetts does have a rule that once you form a Massachusetts nonprofit charity, it always has to be a nonprofit charity based in Massachusetts. So you couldn't form a charity in Massachusetts under Massachusetts law and merge into a charity formed elsewhere and have the other charity be the surviving charity. And that actually has interfered with some of the transactions I've seen that Massachusetts charities have wanted to engage in with uh, charities formed elsewhere. And we've, we've always been able to find a workaround for that. But for founders that want to form a, a national or international charity uh, with certain flexibility, my recommendation is to form the nonprofit in Delaware and then just register to do business in whichever state's the charity wants to, to operate in because Delaware has a, a less rigid regulatory regime. And so having these kinds of conversations early on enables the founder to have an idea of kind of the breadth of options that they have to accomplish this philanthropic mission that they care so much about. And I generally offer new clients a, sort of a half an hour introductory conversation. I certainly don't charge them for it. And, and often I'll have the conversation and potential client gets a lot of ideas to think about. And, and then I might not hear back from them for two, three or four months. And then they usually come back and say, you know what? I really enjoyed our initial conversation. I appreciate all the ideas you shared this is how I want to go. I'm certain that this is the path forward and then we can help them. But it's it's always better to provide someone with all the options and make sure that if they want to engage my help, it's because that's actually the right path for them and they've had the chance to think about it. I have had conversations with potential clients where at the end of the conversation, we both kind of pause and think, and then we say, probably don't need my help right now. And, and that's okay because my, my approach is I want to be adding value. And if, if my assistance isn't needed because there's a better path for them, then, then it's the right outcome. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, I talk about return on investment and, and the return on investment, whether it's the 30 minute consult, whether it's hiring you for a little bit longer of a consultation, it really strikes me as, if you have this business idea and with all the laws that, that are out there, the state and federal around nonprofits, that it really makes sense to invest in that way and make sure that you are headed in the right direction. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's true when you're starting a, a for-profit as well. But let's add one more thing in the mix. Suppose you're starting a nonprofit and you are starting it either with a partner or a romantic partner. You mentioned that couple that was looking for land uh, to yeah. do something that didn't work out. How does that change things up when you're working with a couple versus an individual? Or does it? Maybe it doesn't at all. Well, I, I think you, you definitely want to make sure that the team, 
whatever the team is, if it's a couple, if it's college friends, if it's just business partners that want to engage in a philanthropic activity, that, that there's a common vision and that there's a common vision, not only with respect to the activity that the charity or the philanthropic activity is going to accomplish, but also clarity regarding how it's going to be funded, how it's going to be governed and administered. It, you know, who's going to have which role? You know, who's going to be the president of the nonprofit? Who's going to be the chair of the board, right? So oftentimes kind of allocating those roles between the two, if it's a couple, you know, one will be the the president and CEO and the other might be the chair of the board, or maybe they'll, one will be the president and the other will be the CEO. There are different ways to make sure that both parties feel meaningfully engaged, but it's important to have clarity regarding that at the outset. I also think that if, if this is a, a kind of a self-funded family initiative, that there should be clarity regarding what the financial limits are. Uh, in the case that I, I mentioned uh, about the kind of philanthropic venture that, that really didn't work out because of the local, local uh, zoning and, and assessors folks, um, I think there hadn't been a conversation about the amount of money that would be devoted to that endeavor. And I think more was invested in a charitable enterprise that ultimately didn't go anywhere than I think either party was happy with. Yeah. And because we're breaking money silence, uh, do you help individuals or teams have these conversations or is that something that you work with someone else around facilitating those conversations and then they come back to you for the legal advice? Well, in that former case, I I was asked to advise at the very, very tail end of the process. So I I didn't have an opportunity to help facilitate conversations that might have been useful earlier on. I'm not a a counselor. I, I give what I hope to be helpful uh, business and and tax and philanthropic advice, which sometimes sounds a bit like counseling. But if, if I'm aware that there might be a dynamic that requires uh, a little more support, you know, that's where someone else would come in and, and support the conversation among the founders. That makes sense. And I think one of the things of having the consult with you is it may be an awareness of, wow, there are a lot of things that we need to be talking about. And what I find in my experience, like I said, has been less in the nonprofit world, but when partners get together, there is this honeymoon phase of, oh, isn't this going to be great running a business together or running a nonprofit together? And then you get in it and you're like, oh, (laughs) there's a lot of things that we need to be talking about around money and certainly financial limits around how much we're going to invest in in the business or in the nonprofit is certainly one of them. So I'm curious before we end today, what is one piece of advice or one tip you'd like to leave the women who are listening in today and the advisors that serve them about uh, nonprofits and philanthropy? Well, I think it's a great time to be engaged with philanthropy. Uh, My advice would be to think expansively. You, you have traditional charitable vehicles, 501c3 organizations that are doing great work on many, many areas to make the world a better place and help humanity, help the environment. But there are so many 
options these days to accomplish a philanthropic purpose. LLCs have become a very useful giving vehicle. That's the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. It's an LLC. Pierre Omidyar formed a foundation and an LLC to achieve philanthropic purposes in a synergistic manner. And the LLC can do things that a 501c3 cannot do. There are impact investing funds that can be a vehicle for deploying money to have an impact, but also provide a return if that's important or a necessity. I mentioned 501c4 organizations as a vehicle for accomplishing philanthropic and charitable purposes with less regulation from the IRS. And there's some venture charities like uh, Blue Meridian Partners that engage with donors and grantees in innovative ways and that support scaling effective philanthropic solutions and So think expansively, but then act deliberately, you know, be informed, do your research, and then take deliberate action to accomplish your charitable vision. I love that. That's super helpful. And clearly, Sharon, we can tell you're very passionate about the work you do and also incredibly knowledgeable. So I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I've certainly learned a lot. And I'm wondering how, if people want to take you up in the offer for the 30-minute consult or just want to connect with you and follow your work, how can they best reach out and do so? The best way, you can go to Kasner and Edwards' uh, website, or just Google my name, Sharon Lincoln, Kasner, and I'll come up on the search. And you can go to my online bio, which has my phone number and email. And uh, anyone is, is certainly welcome to reach out. But that's the best way. Excellent. Well, we will put the link in the show notes. And I've really appreciated Breaking Money Silence with you today, Sharon. Thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by Oak Maple Finance. At Oak Maple, our fiduciary, heart-centered approach means letting go of one plan fits all advice. Our process is simple. You talk, we listen. You get financial guidance customized to your specific needs because we know that life is better when your financial plan fits you. Visit our website at oakmaple.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.